Hello everyone, welcome to the I Am Cannabis Sativa podcast. I'm your host, Dan Scotland. If you're currently a medical marijuana patient and want to tell your story and be featured on the podcast, feel free to email me at IamCannabisSativa at gmail.com. Feel free to hit me up on Instagram at IamCannabisSativa. Feel free to check out our official Twitter account at Pod. You can also find and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor FM, Overcast, Radio Public, TuneIn, Stitcher, and the Google Play Music Store. Please rate and review us on iTunes, as rating and reviewing us will bump up the pod on their algorithm and put this project in front of even more eyeballs. If you like what we are doing, please become a Patreon supporter of the podcast and support us. Supporting us helps us keep the lights on, pay rent, pay for hosting, equipment, and travel. You can do this by going to www.anchor.fm slash podcast slash support. You can also support me on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash podcast. You can support this podcast for as little as $1 a month. We also have a $5 tier if you are feeling extra generous. Is this one of those episodes where I just sort of run out of ideas and just shrug and just replay things and replay um, memories that I've had over the year um, doing this Canvas podcast? Is this, is this that that episode that I do that? I don't know. I, I, I guess it is. Without further ado, here's the show. In a lot of states, it's it's very you have to kind of walk a very sort of thin line. So, were there any were there any things you had to do to get um, people that w- were would have been t- opposed to it, or, or was there like any sort of things you had to do to sort of get reach people that are more religious or more likely opposed? To it? So we didn't really have to reach out to people that were opposed to this, but you know there is a level of uh, soft support out there for this issue. Uh, that they will, uh, they're favorable to the idea of medical marijuana, they'll vote for a proposal on it, uh, but, you know, if it's flawed in some way in their eyes, if it's, uh, then they're quite willing to, to not vote for it. Uh, and that, that represents about a quarter of the electorate. Uh, there's, there's about 40 uh, to 45% of the electorate that was just always absolutely going to vote for a medical marijuana proposal, uh, unless it was just really deeply flawed. Uh, and then uh, there's another quarter of the people who uh, they were uh, kind of on the fence about it. And so it was really those people that we had to make sure that we didn't lose. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of the things that uh, are uh, we highlighted weren't even things about the law that we were changing, but we had to highlight here are things we aren't changing. Uh, we're not going to allow anyone to drive under the influence. We're not going to allow anyone to uh, use in public unless there's some uh, carve out by the legislature or a local government. Uh, you know, we're not going to force local governments to have these on every, uh, every, uh, you know, those are the things that uh, people were worried about in the implementation. And so we had to kind of highlight that it was, uh, you know, there were going to be some regulations on it. Um, I know that's uh, not always popular with, uh, with the activists. Uh, and, you know, I, I would prefer fewer regulations to more, but it is the, the, these are the things that some of the, the middle of the road voters want to see, and that's the, uh, the sort of thing we had to highlight to say, hey, this, it's not going to dramatically change, change your life by allowing. But there is an exception to that. You know, in Maine, Maine 
is very like the West Coast in a lot of ways, and I'm going to explain why. So I, I got into this pretty interesting Reddit thread about this. Um, I'll, I'll probably enclose the links in the thread, but this is how Maine's program works. And I feel that the states that are legalizing medical shouldn't really take cues from most of the East Coast except Maine, because, you know, from from Pennsylvania, Jersey, all those, New, New York, whatever, those, all these East Coast states, my state, Massachusetts, where it's big cannabis, it's pay to play. It's, you know, in my state, you have, for medical, you have vertical integration. And again, I, I will I re repeat this again, as I've repeated several, several times, just say no to vertical integration. If your lawmakers start being like, oh, we have to, we have to do this to, to make the, cannabis industry a proper industry and to prevent this from turning into recreational we have to do this so our cronies get rich and our but our rich buddies get rich the very buddies that bankroll us so we can be state senators and state reps so if your congress people ever try to put, be like oh we need vertical integration nope the f out of of that because it keeps your prices high it keeps your prices high and makes it so only juggernauts can compete and not the craft grower, not the legacy grower, not the pioneer that's been doing this before it was hip and cool. And, you know, they get priced out and we can't have that. But um, there's a lot to glean from Maine, what Maine did in 1999 by legalizing medical marijuana and keeping out big cannabis. So there, the Maine is very much like the is very much as advanced as the West Coast is on cannabis. They're very much as advanced as Colorado is. You know, I've had their offerings. They're that good. There's a lot we can learn from Maine. And um, I know I've been beating these episodes to death, but we're going to do one last sort of episode for now about Maine scene and what you, what you new states that are legalizing Idaho, Nebraska, and um, Mississippi, all you three states should listen to this. And, you know, because this is going to be relevant because you're going to want to keep out big cannabis and you're going to want to make the barriers of entry low. Because if you do that, if you do that, it makes it so almost anyone could get in the business and you can have people who can just grow and then they send their grows to dispensaries. Like in California, you have that going. Where before Prop 215, yeah, no, bef no, before Prop 64, 215 was their medical, which was legalized in the 90s. 64 is the new one. So before Prop 64, these dispensaries were getting their cannabis from small growers. So what you were able to do was just, you were just able to sell, like if you were a small time grower, you can just sell your weed directly to a dispensary and you know you don't need to be vertically integrated you don't need to control all the aspects of your business you know and you don't need millions of dollars to be able to do this so let's let's so there's just an unofficial history of Maine Maine's medical canvas thing scene so I'm going to read this sort of overview of, of Maine's sort of journey with medical marijuana and I feel a lot can be learned from this you know I, I feel like I feel like a lot can be learned for this from this to make um, the new states that are going to come on board to have them have more of a craft cannabis scene where, 
you know, it's centered on small growers, small caregivers, small farmers, you know, small producers. You can squash big cannabis at its tracks right now, Idaho, um, Nebraska, and Mississippi. And here's how you can do it. So I'm going to read the story right now. My understanding is limited. And my apologies if it sounds like I am mansplaining. But here, here's what was explained to me a long time ago by some bushy older grower on the beach. Maine decriminalized small amounts of marijuana in 1976-1977. There was a flourishing scene in the 1980s with a lot of cool genetics like Mother of Berries being developed. Pretty much everyone and their neighbor was growing genetics and they were freely traded. By 1999, they were one of the first states to go full medical and created the caregiver system. It was a system designed to benefit local farmers to grow crops for a group of local patients. Then the law slowly expanded and decrim allowed for even higher amounts to go legit. Municipalities like Portland outright legalized possession of a couple ounces in the early 2000s. So in a lot of ways, Maine is analogous to California in that they were only a number of years behind developing a small craft market to supply a relatively small patient base. California gets all the recognition because it's a huge state with 10 times the growers. Maine kind of got overshadowed for a while by their polarizing governor, Paul, quote, have a beer at this shithole bar I now work at LePage. For the most part, for, mo for the most part, or for most of my weed smoking life, 20 years, or the, the writer's weed smoking life, I would often read Overgrow all about all the main cultivators and sort of took it for granted that it was the untouchable fruit in New England. And the entire eastern seaboard, emphasis mine, Maine is the undisputed champion of cannabis on the eastern seaboard. No one comes close. No one else, no one else has that title. No one. You know, I mean, maybe you can make the case for Florida having a very good, um, um, what's the name, black market or Florida being like, or Florida being a great place for cannabis because the weather is so great. But I mean, as long as you have authoritarians running th things as, and as long as, as long as you're in the Bible belt, you're not really going to get meaningful cannabis reform or you're going to, you're going to have to fight tooth and nail for it. But, you know, Maine, from what I know of it as a state, is uh, is very independent-minded. They can't really be put into a box. They'll vote for they'll vote for conservative pieces of crap like Paul LePage, but then they will vote for ranked choice voting. They're very you you can't put you can't really put a label on Maine. They they do their own thing, you know, they they march to the beat of their own drummer. But um I'm digressing, I'm getting into the weeds here. But um, let's let's continue with now that Maine is opening up the box to everyone. It creates creates a huge opportunity for Maine and its community of curs and caregivers who have been at it for years to cash in. Take green truck extracts, for example. I heard about them years ago, but it wasn't until recently that it became a possibility to even bother investigating whether they would provide for an out-of-stater. Plus, it's easier in Maine to open a small business storefront. Massachusetts is a difficult state to open small business in, regardless of the industry. That whole additional $50 for paper seemed absurd at the time, 
But looking back, I kicked myself for not connecting the dots. But I am a simple, stupid man if anything else. Regardless, the simple answer is that Maine has had laws that have always favored in-state operations, as it should. It's a small population and Maine residents should get first priority. Massachusetts legalization was basically paid for by Rick Steves. Plus, there were no big canna companies in 1999. The big canna companies were international seed vendors like Gypsy Nirvana and distributors like Mark Emery. So Maine got a tremendous head start opposed to Massachusetts that was really hardline prohibition state until 2008. That's true. Again, in 2008, let me let me give you let me give you some inside knowledge. So 2008 was a very momentous year in, in for sort of cannabis reform in Massachusetts. You know, a lot of people decrim passed overwhelmingly. I think it I think it got like over 60 something percent of the vote. And it was, I mean, it also helps that it was like on the same um, it was on the same ballot as the first African American president. That that helped a lot too, but. You know, Massachusetts was putting people in a cage willy-nilly for weed before 2008. So, you know, and I, I even, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, name names, but I even know some people that were, like, that to this day still have charges. You know, Ma Massachusetts was very reefer madness until 2008. And then in 08, we got decrim. 2012, we got medical. And then um, 2016, we voted in um, adult youth. But yeah, we were pretty hard, hard lying against cannabis on, until low eight. But just a little bit of uh, knowledge for you guys. But yeah, this this writer of this sort of summary is correct in that in, in that fat in that set. Sure, you can get beasters and mids everywhere, but to get kind bud and headies, you had to go to Western Mass. Again, he's also right. Western Mass does have good cannabis. I mean, I went to UMass Amherst. I would know. I, I've gotten some strains when I, that I've used from some dealers. I, I mean, I've had my share of dealers that were like that you know, that grew in an off-campus apartment and would 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 spray dry cleaning, dry would spray Febreze to prevent the prevent themselves from getting caught growing weed or whatever. So I mean, I, I have run into those scenarios. I have had some crappy quality cannabis, but I've also had some top shelf that's that's better than this that, that that is stronger than dispensaries i've gone to as a grown grown adult in my 20s or almost in my 30s you know i've, I've had some some strains that were so potent like you know that they were even more potent than the dispensaries i go to so i have had some very strong quality in in, in western mass that can be had so he is right on that because i've experienced so you to get kind bud and headies, you had to go to Western Mass, Rhode Island, Vermont, or find Sketchmos in Boston. I knew Maine had a serious scene, but breaking into it wasn't in the cards for teenage me. Point is, Maine has been taking medical cannabis ser as serious as California for just as long. There is a strong cannabis culture in Maine that has prevailed since the 1960s and is now being revealed in mass. Good luck to all in Maine and let the sun shine on your entire community of caregivers, growers, and everyone else that has helped contribute to what I feel is a model industry of the East Coast. Here's to a bright future for Mainers.
lights a, a fat doink of main grown banana bread. End of end of testimony and end of summary of Maine's scene. Again, we're sort of approaching 20 minutes. I don't wanna I don't wanna keep you guys too long. I hope you guys got the point of what I was trying to say. If you're in Idaho, Nebraska, or um, or Mississippi, you wanna make you wanna make these ballot measures favor small growers and small farmers because then you're gonna have a potent craft cannabis scene where you know where you're just where you're just making small batches of cannabis or you're having a bunch of people with very low barriers being able to get into the cannabis scene very easily being able to provide two two patients directly and you're having it so you know so these patients know their grower they know where they're getting their cannabis it's not being mass produced by a multi-million dollar company you know, it's just average Joes doing this and average Janes providing medicine to their neighbors and to their buddies and, and, and to their patients. You know, I, I love I love the main caregiver scene. I, I can't I can't say enough good things about it. My main caregiver, she she is the best. She puts a lot of um, a lot of the offerings I've had in, in some in some places to shame. It's she's just so good at what she does. And. It's amazing knowing your your grower. Like I, I, she she posts like Instagram like pictures of like the new strain she's growing for the patients. So I'm so I'm able to know what I'm able to know on the fly that my cannabis is being taken care of. I'm, I know that that what's being put in my tinctures is the top is top shelf quality. You know I I know that it's being made with tender love and care. But at a mass produced can big cannabis company that has millions hundreds of millions of dollars to throw around i don't know that these growers are putting the same love and care into the product it's mass produced at some at some industrial warehouse space in god knows where in central massachusetts or something i don't know but you know it's not being made with the same love as someone growing it in their in their house or someone growing it in their in their um farm and their small farm or whatever like you have in maine but in idaho mississippi and um nebraska you have the opportunity to avoid big cannabis like um like maine has avoided you have the opportunity to do that and you should take that opportunity to do all you can to avoid big cannabis avoid vertical integration avoid avoid big cannabis and allow the bent barriers of entry to be low and make it easy to start a business. Make it like copy, copy Maine, copy um, Oklahoma, and you're you're gonna have a very good program that's gonna be very cheap and very accessible for patients, and very cheap and accessible for people who want to grow and participate in the cannabis field at any capacity. So I'm, I'll just leave you with that, and I hope you guys got a lot out. Let me read it. Current marijuana laws more harm than good. America is often cited as the land of opportunity, freedom, and rugged individualism. We are often remembered for our equality of opportunity extended to people of various creeds, races, and genders. However, can America fully boast, boast individual rights when citizens are restricted in terms of the substances they can ingest in their systems? American drug policy is, is flawed and outdated. It is a policy that is not alignment with current times and current societal needs. But American 
America's policy on cannabis is much in need of improvement. It's most in need of improvement and alteration, especially when it has been proven to have legitimate medical properties. There are numerous arguments as to why America should consider legalizing marijuana, not only for medical purposes. Medical marijuana has a long history of being found to have many potential medical properties. However, it cannot be fully researched and learned about because of current federal drug laws. America's aggressive drug policy for class one substances has taken away attention from other crimes and overcrowded jails. Despite the negative effects of cannabis, legal and accepted drugs such as alcohol and tobacco are equally as dangerous. Marijuana prior to his prohibition in 1937 has been a prevalent drug in treating various ailments. It has been used in the Middle East and India as a painkiller. During the 19th century, during the 19th century, the medical community within the United States and Canada has conducted numerous studies conducted numerous studies on the properties of cannabis and treating various illnesses. However, focus shifted towards the pharmaceutical opiates, aspirin, chloral, and barbiturates, Hall and Dagenhart. In, in the early 20th century, cannabis began to be dismissed as a drug and narcotic with no legitimate medical use. The international community started to, to widely reject cannabis in the United States under FDR prohibit, prohibited the use and consumption of marijuana in 1937. Ar Although the global community has ostracized marijuana, studies continue to be done on the properties of cannabis in many nations. In 1964, American scientists found a way to isolate THC, the main the main agent in marijuana responsible for all its psychological and phys physical effects. This gave way to the creation of synthetic THC nebuline, which, which, which can be ingested in pill form. Scientists have been striving to find ways to keep unfavorable psychological effects to a minimum by isolating or reducing dosages of THC. Thus, marijuana sympathizers have argued that the best and easiest way to treat illness is to allow marijuana to legally be smoked. Holland Dagenhart. Marijuana in synthetic or isolated form is known as cannabinoids. Cannabinoids have also been known to be as effective as certain doses of codeine. Cannabinoids have, have been known for their adverse psychoactive effects. Many argue that before cannabinoids can become a serious medical entity, scientists as well as the medical community must find ways to dilute and minimize its effects. Some have recommended that cannabinoids should be mixed with other legal painkillers, Hall and Dagenhart. Another, I mean, amongst many things, cannabis is known for preventing nausea and increasing the appetite of, uh, of AIDS and cancer patients. Studies have shown that it also reduces inaugural pr pressure for patients suffering from glaucoma. Marijuana is also known, has also been shown to be effective in treating other diseases such as multiple sclerosis, paraplegia, epilepsy, and quadriplegia, or armento. A few a few very limited trials and studies have been conducted to figure out the effectiveness of using marijuana to treat such conditions in treating multiple sclerosis. Very few studies and trials have been conducted 
to fully assess efficacy. In treating cases of glaucoma, cannabinoids have been found to reduce inocular pressure, the leading symptom of glaucoma, by 25%, Paul and Dagan Hart. However, due to current federal laws, strides can't be taken to fully know the potential marijuana. According to the article, medical marijuana medical marijuana alternatives are they justified how successful are they likely to be the federal government from 1978 to 1992 has allowed eight people full access to marijuana for medical purposes as most conventional treatments were not effective for these individuals many states during the 1990s started to see the potential for cannabis for medical purposes. In 1996, California became the first state to legalize cannabis for medical purposes as a result of Initiative 215 passing. By, tw- by 2001, 32 states had legalized medical marijuana to a certain capacity. About nine states allow, about nine states currently allow physicians to prescribe cannabis to patients. Citizens in these states continue to find themselves at odds with current federal laws. The Supreme Court had ruled in 2005 that although states may have decriminalized or legalized marijuana for medical purposes, citizens that who use marijuana despite legality in certain states could be held under federal jurisdiction, Hall and Dagenhart. Despite the, despite the threat of federal prosecution and liability, doctors in states like California have recommended the drug to over 350,000 patients. Doctors currently want to prescribe cannabis and cannabinoids to qualifying patients, but many do not want to be held liable for potentially adverse and negative effects of marijuana. Institutions like the University of California, Berkeley have only been able to conduct small-scale studies because of current federal laws and jurisdiction. Though little research has been conducted, medical marijuana has been shown in these studies to cure neuropathic pain better than placebos. Fast tag. Another convincing argument for reconsidering current drug policy in marijuana includes the prevalent problem of increasing prison populations. Prisons in the United States report overcrowding in, in numerous states. States like California and Alabama are at 100 and are at 175 and 200% over capacity, respectively. The United States of America has the world's largest incarceration rate, despite only comprising 5% of the global population. Many inmates are barely over the age of 18. Current federal, state, and local law enforcement is costing over $200 billion a year, many of which can be used for funding and improving America's health and education system on a variety of levels. The current drug policy, which emphasizes an aggressive get tough approach, does little in the way of actually rehabilitating and and preparing released criminals for life outside of incarceration. As a result, a staggering 50% of criminals are likely to be rearrested and thrown back into jail systems. All of this is costing the taxpayer an average, costing the average taxpayer a significant amount of money. Pierce. The fact that marijuana is illegal does not lend itself to easy and safe distribution. As a result of its prohibition, responsible recreational users and patients can only obtain cannabis through organized crime drug dealers. Organized crime markets have been allowed to prolifer- proliferate since prohibition. 
Many of the of its dealers are nonviolent offenders, but as as a result of current laws, normally law-abiding individuals must obtain marijuana through dubious methods, such as buying from dealers. For example, individuals who wish to purchase medical marijuana in California must obtain their prescribed marijuana from the Cannabis Buyers Club, an organization that obtains its marijuana from illegal dealers. If the federal government decides to lift the ban on marijuana for all purposes, legislation could be made to legally distribute to legally and safety dis- distribute cannabis. The law system would not have to make criminals of mostly non-assuming and innocent individuals. Holland Dagenhart. The American the American criminal justice system has the best intentions of securing the general public and keeping criminals from disrupting the peace within our society. But their oversells enforcement of drug laws have done more harm than good, as spending on the federal level has increased exponentially from $1.5 billion in 1981 to $12 billion in 2002. Arrests for drug law violations and charges have increased from 600000 a year in 1980 to $1.5 million today. As a result of current drug policies, the prison population has increased to over 2 million inmates. The Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, argues that stopping drug possession curbs other crimes. Although there is a high correlation between the two variables, it is simply just that, and it does not prove a causality. Shepard, Shepard, Blackley. To the dismay of many advocates, marijuana drug policies in the near future are not expected to see much debate or reconsideration. Various senators, including John McCain and President-elect Barack Obama, supported the Second Chance Act, which will will appropriate over $360 for job training for criminals after they are released from jail. Although it's a step in the right direction, further steps will be halted in the near future as President-elect Obama does not plan to allow federal drug laws to be revisited, revised, and and debated, including the prohibition of marijuana. Pierce. If the new administration and individuals stated to take power are unwilling to revise the drug laws or learn more about the effects of drugs and crime, what is to be said about the future of marijuana? One cannot simply assess its future without fully understanding its effects, both positive and negative, and assessing them in comparison to other drugs. In an ideal world, marijuana just or it just merely induces a case of the munchies and does ha- not harm anyone. But however, there are still numerous problems and concerns that legalized marijuana creates. Numerous studies have been done on the effects of marijuana in America as well as other nations. According to one of these studies, cannabis may be associated with antisocial behavior. Violent and antisocial behavior has been observed in both animals and humans during laboratory observations and studies. The violent antisocial behavior is significant because it has been shown to have an effect on young and developing adolescents. Cannabis use among this age block has been linked to an increased risk of psychosis within adulthood, which is conducive 
to increasing violent behavior and tendencies in the future, Howard and, and Manx. Despite the fact that many of the negative effects pertain to individuals, serious consideration for revising current drug laws must be considered when they affect others. Marijuana has been shown to affect psychomotor performance and impair reaction times when performing tasks like driving. Marijuana smokers and patients both patients and recreational users can just be can be just as much of hazards on the road as drunk drivers. The adverse effects are very apparent in both with both adolescents who use marijuana and have behavioral disorders and adults with both psychological, both psychiatric and substance abuse problems. Marijuana uses only, only exacerbates the problem of these demographics in the long run and will cost Americans money to rehabilitate and treat these people. Holland Dagenhart. Although marijuana is known to have negative and adverse effects, alcohol and legal drugs are equally notorious for negative effects. We live in a society that finds alcohol to be a drink that is not only, app that is not only appetizing, but makes individuals happy and jovial. People often find the need to smoke a celebratory cigar during the good times in life. Despite apparent social benefits, alcohol and cigarettes have been linked to both cancer and cardiovascular diseases. Recent reviews have con concluded that alcohol and tobacco can increase the risk of various heart diseases. Individuals who, who drink up to three to four drinks per day have been shown to have lower risks of heart attacks. However, three or more drinks per day increases vulnerability towards diseases such as ischemic stroke and alcohol in larger doses increases the risk of myocardial cardial infraction, mucamol. Alcohol has also been linked to negative changes in blood pressure. Consumption of over three drinks daily is has been linked to increased blood pressure. Consumers of three or more drinks have been shown to have a 50% increase in high blood pressure, mucamol. Given the many facts of these adverse effects of marijuana, alcohol and tobacco. Current laws on marijuana are currently unjustified. Legal drugs have been shown to increase diseases and risk for cancer, as well as a higher rate of fatalities. Although marijuana affects the psyche of adults and children, its positive attributes continue to outweigh the negative aspects. Marijuana, unlike alcohol and tobacco, have actually been proven to eradicate or ease symptoms of numerous diseases such as AIDS, cancer, and glaucoma, just to name a few. In conclusion, drug policy should not, in conclusion, our drug policy should be reevaluated on the principle alone that cannabis reduces more problems than, than it creates. Why should America, better yet the whole global community, let a depression era public policy shape current medical progress and discovery? When legal drugs have their fair share of problems, illegal drugs like marijuana have been shown to have more effects than alcohol, more benefits than alcohol and tobacco. 
The next time a law-abiding American individual who resides in the freest nation of the world decides to recreationally light a joy or cure the intolerable symptoms of their diseases, the federal government should be at work hunting down bin Laden or finding America's most wanted criminals. Cracking down on an individual who will just be extraordinarily hungry after their joint is a waste of time, energy, and money. America, uphold your reputation of being the freest nation in the world. And that's the end of the essay. And without further ado, let's hit it. So um, this is how to get a medical marijuana card in Louisiana 2019 update. And this is from Marijuana Break. And it's written by Marijuana Break staff. So if you're wondering how to get a medical marijuana card in Louisiana, be advised that the process itself is oddly beguiling, for lack of better term. On the other hand, the state has one of the simplest, most straightforward recommendation process. See below for details. But on the other hand, there are also few doctors that have been willing to go through the certification process that's required to issue pot prescriptions. Furthermore, even those in Louise, even for those Louisiana patients that have received a recommendation from a doctor, medical marijuana is still not available to buy or grow in the state. Well, I mean, it sort of is, um, but you know, this article was written a couple weeks ago. So it's, well, it came before this, but I, I digress. It's still not available to buy or grow in the state as delays have pushed back the launch date of the program for well over a year. In this article, in addition of course, to explaining how to apply for medical marijuana in Louisiana, we discuss everything you need to know about cannabis in the state, how it works, how to get approved, and when you can expect to actually start buying legal products. Medical marijuana laws in Louisiana. A brief history. The state of Louisiana has had a relatively unique history with cannabis over the years. Depending on who exactly you talk to, the weed has actually been legal at the medical level since 1978. However, due to a lack of activity on behalf of Louisiana authorities that would have that would have or should have been responsible for actually implementing the program, not a single gram of medical marijuana flower has ever been sold in the state, at least not to a qualified legal patient. However, in 2015, lawmakers took a massive step forward with a MMJ program passing Act 261, a law that allows qualifying doctors to actually prescribe, recommend medical marijuana to select patients. Among the other things, the act provides legal framework relative to the therapeutic use of medical marijuana and provides an adoption of rules and regulations relating to the prescribing, dis dispensing, and producing of marijuana for therapeutic use. The, pa the passing of the law sounded well and good to potential patients at the time, but ask anyone who has been interested in applying for medical marijuana in Louisiana over the past few years, and they will tell you that the program has provided not much more than a long-term headache. <laughs> even though that there are even though there are doctors actively seeking patients in the state and issuing prescriptions and recommendations for the use of medical cannabis, issues at the regulatory level have delayed pharmacies from actually operating and selling and slash dispensing medicine. Let's take a, a, a little deeper look to find out what has been the holdup. Medical marijuana in Louisiana. How does it work? One of Louisiana's medical marijuana, once Louisiana's medical marijuana program actually gets up and running, it will in fact offer one of the simplest, most straightforward MMJ licensing processes in the country. 
basically all you have to do is get approved for cannabis is find a doctor willing to meet you and discuss your condition as well as your previous experience with cannabis of course only select individuals with qualifying conditions may be permitted to apply for medical cannabis in louisiana qualifying conditions for medical marijuana in louisiana cancer hiv aids wasting syndrome seizure slash epilepsy spasticity including severe muscle spasms crohn's disease muscular dystrophy multiple sclerosis glaucoma parkinson's disease intractable pain post-traumatic stress disorder specific symptoms of autism spectrum disorder as you might have guessed the condition of intractable pain naturally may stem from an array of other underlying ailments. So be advised that the above list of qualifying conditions for medical cannabis in Louisiana is not necessarily a comprehensive one. How to apply for medical marijuana in Louisiana. Unlike other states, the state of Louisiana does not have a specific application program that one must complete in order to apply for medical marijuana. In fact, patients do not do not so much apply for medical cannabis as they simply meet with a doctor to discuss their condition. And we're going to and as always, we're going to provide doctors in the show notes that you can check out in your neck of the woods in Louisiana if you're seeking to get a medical marijuana recommendation. We're going to put all that in the show notes so you can get the so you can get the ball rolling. But Let's continue. However, finding a medical marijuana doctor in Louisiana is not an easy task. There are conflicting reports as to how many physicians in the state are actually qualified to issue medical marijuana prescriptions. One source cited as many as 68, while another said there are fewer than 10. But what we do know is that before any Louisiana doctor can issue a recommendation for medical cannabis, he or she must complete an online program in order to obtain their therapeutic marijuana registration. Basically, this registration gives them access to the Board Pharmacy Medical Cannabis Registry. Once they have access, doctors can remove patients as they see fit. A patient that is entered into Louisiana's medical marijuana registry may buy, possess, use various forms of therapeutic cannabis. That is, of course, once pharmacies become open for business. How to get a medical marijuana card in Louisiana? Again, be advised that if you receive a valid physician recommendation and end up qualifying for medical cannabis in the state, there is still really no such thing as a medical marijuana card in Louisiana. Rather, you will simply be placed in the online registry, at which point you can visit a cannabis pharmacy when they open to buy legal medication. If you are interested in getting a medical marijuana card in Louisiana, here are the steps you must take. Find a doctor. Simply put, we won't be getting medical cannabis. You won't be getting medical cannabis in Louisiana without first seeing a licensed practicing doctor. As we mentioned earlier, however, there are a few in the state that have taken an online program required to obtain therapeutic marijuana registration. We will say that Dr. Victor Chow's Medical Marijuana Clinic of Louisiana, located in Baton Rouge, is an excellent option and as he has already seen thousands of patients and entered many into the Louisiana Board of Pharmacy online registry. Once cannabis pharmacies begin to open up in the state, his patients will be able to legally buy medical marijuana in Louisiana. You can learn more by visiting his website. We're going to put his website in the show notes. Or you can call 225 225- 
800-313-1162 to schedule an in-person cannabis consultation. There are a handful of other doctors that issue medical marijuana prescriptions, but you'll have to call around and search for them as to our knowledge at least, there is not a specific database that lists Louisiana physicians who have obtained their therapeutic marijuana registration. Step two, visit a pharmacy. As we've discussed earlier, once you have found a doctor that can issue you a cannabis prescri prescription in Louisiana, you will be entered into Louisiana Board of Pharmacy Therapeutic Marijuana Registry as a qualified patient. Once in the registry, you may visit any of the one any any one of the nine of the nine licensed marijuana pharmacies to purchase medicine. Of course, as of early 2019, there is no up and running pharmacies in the state. Well, that has changed according to today. Wanting to buy medical marijuana in Louisiana? Here's why it keeps getting delayed. Even for the hundreds of patients that have already been approved for medical cannabis in Louisiana, none of, none of them have yet been able to access or buy medication. Simply put, this is because none of the state's nine approved marijuana pharmacies are open for business. Medical marijuana in Louisiana is unique that it requires academic research organizations to be responsible for the growth and oversight of the plants they'll be used to make medicine. Currently, Louisiana State University and Southern University in, in Baton Rouge are the only two organizations allowed to supply the state's nine pharmacies with legal marijuana, medical marijuana meds. Both LSU and Southern have hired independent third-party companies, GV Sciences and Lara Holistic Healthcare, respectively, to conduct the grow operations, but conflicts regarding regulatory oversight and product testing have resulted in multiple delays to the program's start date. Hence, the reason why medical marijuana in Louisiana is still not available to purchase for qualified patients. If you are a qualified patient and are wondering when you'll be able to visit a pharmacy and buy medical marijuana in Louisiana, most estimates are saying that they will that it will be available may 2019 at the absolute earliest before pharmacies begin to open and this is for lsu's supplier gb sciences it appears that the other supplier southern university Lara holistic healthcare won't be expecting to have product available for pharmacies until fall 2019 at the earliest Final thoughts on how to get a medical marijuana card in Louisiana. If you're interested in getting a medical marijuana card in Louisiana, the process is really as simple as meeting with a qualified doctor and getting and obtaining a prescription that will enter you into the Board of Pharmacy's online registry. You will need to be diagnosed with one of the state's qualifying medical conditions, see above, as well as find a Louisiana doctor that's actually approved to recommend medical cannabis. In terms of the program itself, medical cannabis in Louisiana will not have, will, will not be available in traditional flower form to be smoked. To our understanding, it will only be available in the following forms. Therapeutic oils and tinctures, pills, liquids, topicals, creams, lotions, etc. One of the many things about Louisiana's program, however, is that it placed the majority of the responsibility on medical professionals rather than for-profit, rather than profit-seeking businesses. In other words, your meds will be in the hands of a licensed pharmacist rather than a dispensary manager who is nothing more than a saleswoman and or man. As Dr. Chow puts it above, 
cannabis dispensaries in other states essentially have no legal or ethical obligation and as they are nothing more than independent businesses looking to push a product for profit. When your medicine and treatment protocol is in the hands of doctors and pharmacists, this is not the case as they are responsible under moral and legal implications for your overall health, safety, and well-being. While individuals may have to wait until the latter stage in 2019 to buy medical marijuana in Louisiana, at least they can rest assured that they will be patients of one of the most regulated, responsible MMJ programs in the country. End of article. Um, one of them is like, um, could you sort of like in a nutshell explain, um, like the, the, all, I don't want to say all the, the, uh, professional sports sort of drug policy, but you know, just cover, cover some brief ground as, as I, I know NFL's policy is the strictest and the NHL is the most lenient, but just sort of give like the listeners like a, a rundown as to how drug policy works, whether in college, college sports or the NFL. That yeah, sure. So most, if not all, uh, professional, and I am lumping collegiate sports in the professional realm because even though the athletes aren't making money, everybody else's. Um, almost all of the uh, sports leagues at least take a cue from the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, or the USADA, which is the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency. And um, so I'm, I'm actually a part of Athletes for Care. Um, I'm, I'm uh, an athlete ambassador, and I don't know if you know, but we uh, actually just released a letter uh, to WADA and the USADA uh, petitioning for the removal of cannabis from banned substance list um, because last year WADA actually removed uh, CBD uh, from its banned substance list and they also increased the threshold uh, for cannabinoids in the blood and urine uh, but <clears throat> excuse me uh, but in terms of the individual leagues so the NFL has a in in the letter of their bylaws it's the most strict uh, but in actuality um, it's actually no stricter than anywhere else so essentially what happens is um, every single player is going to get drug tested at least once they get notified well ahead of time and um, so essentially what will happen is most players that are on cannabis you know for pain related issues uh, will essentially stop using cannabis for about a month a month and a half uh, before their drug test they pass their drug test and then they resume using uh, unfortunately not under the direction or guidance of a physician um, but they'll use it for the rest of the season um, actually Chris Long actually uh, who just retired he came out um, with a big expose piece about how he played his entire NFL career um, using cannabis uh, to help with all of his pain related issues and how he avoided you know the drug detection test it's not very hard at all as an aside it really makes you think how the hell did Josh uh, what's this? Josh Gordon. Josh Gordon get popped so many times. <laughs> or Ricky but, Williams. Well, Ricky Williams went on record saying that he got high and forgot that he wasn't supposed to get high. 
<laughs> yeah, so that didn't help his situation. No. Uh, but then you have uh, leagues like the NHL, where they actually take a much more progressive uh, stance on this. So essentially all players are randomly drug tested for drugs of abuse. Or rather, that's specifically what they're looking for. Um, so they're looking for PEDs like steroids, uh, human growth hormone. Uh, specifically, they're also looking for um, you know drug. The, the two most abused, uh, quote unquote, recreational drugs are cocaine and THC in in the NHL. So what will happen is if somebody pops positive for something other than like a performance enhancing drug. Um, they will uh, have their te- their specific specimens uh, then become de-anonymized, and uh, their samples go to two specific substance abuse physicians that are employed by the league, and uh, that player then gets called up uh, confidentially by one of those two physicians and says, "Hey, man, um, you know we saw that you tested positive for X, Y, Z." and what's going on is there something that we need to know about like were you just partying or is something going on and they they really try to figure out you know is this person in a lot of pain are they really depressed um were they just being stupid and forgot that you know they were having their you know that they're actually on the road and about to play a game tomorrow um so the players then offered the opportunity to come into the league's substance abuse um, program voluntarily. Um, uh, the, the important thing to note about all of this is that the team and the league are completely kept out of this. So this is between the physician and the player. I like and that. So, yeah, no. It, it, and the, the whole point of this is if the player says, you know what, I just screwed up, it was you know, party night, it's a, you know, I'm a rookie, I've never been to that city, I've never been, you know, I've never had a bank account before, won't happen again. Um, They can say, okay, fine, no harm, no foul, but, you know, you're on our radar. Now, if the person decides to come into the substance abuse program, those two physicians now have the authority given to them by the commissioner's office to levy um, sanctions, fines, uh, penalties, if the person then violates the parameters of their uh, substance abuse program to, you know, that, that's in an effort to keep them as sober as possible. Um, but I, I think that's, there are still some kinks that need to be worked out with that, but I think overall, I think that's the better model. Actually, uh, Riley Cote, who's one of the uh, I've seen him in founders. the um, panel. Like I, I went to there was like a cannabis conference two years ago. I think it was the CWCBE or something like that. And uh-huh. I, I saw him at it. Like it was him. I think Eben. Um, what's what's his name? He played for like the Jaguars or whatever, yep. an NFL player. And there was like another guy I think played who played for the Red Wings or whatever that was on that panel. Yeah, Darren McCarty. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. So. Um, so Riley, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's uh, one of the original founders of um, Athletes for Care, A4C. So he and I are gonna be talking at a uh, charity weekend in, uh, in Naples, uh, Naples, Florida, not Italy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but basically it's it's uh, in front of a lot of you know NHL folks, NFL folks, um, and actually TSN is going to be filming a documentary there. But we're essentially going to be talking to all these people, all really about all of these things. Um, he's going to be talking from you know a player perspective. I'm going to be talking from a medical perspective. Uh, but I, I think that'll be really interesting. So, um, so I see that you're more of like a person that uses. Um, flowers or any sort of screens and any sort of like preparations that work best for you or uh, we'll see like and here's the thing like pennsylvania has had such a flower shortage like it's absurd once a flower drop happens if you don't get there as soon as the dispensary opens you don't get flowers like a lot of our dispensaries open at 10 a.m you can best believe by 12 there will be no flower there so that being the case, I've have I've had to more result towards wax. And so I've started using concentrates more often and I guess flour hasn't been having the same effect on me, you know, as since I've been smoking so much wax lately. But I would like but if the product was available, yes, I would most certainly end up going back to flour more often. I mean, I'm not going to say I don't get flour because I do get flour, but it's just easier for me to get to get wax than because I know I'm not going to get flour if I don't make it to dispensary by a certain time. Like if I can't be in the line that's already formed around the wall outside the door, like then I'm not going to get it. So... Well, a lot of times I don't want to go through that, especially in the winter. Who wants to stand? It's a Pittsburgh, man. Who wants to stand out in like in February, like outside the door before we like, you know? Oh, and another thing is I got to hold my ID up and my like both my IDs, my state license and my Pennsylvania medical card, like up to a camera outside of the dispensary door before they even let me in. Yeah, we have that here in Mass. Yeah. Like, they treat this worse than, like, um, controlled, like, substances. Like, when I go and get, like, like my um, Tilotopin or whatever refilled, I just have to show one ID and then I get it at CVS. You know, I don't have to, I don't have to go through one door and then show the cam, show the card to the camera at CVS. They just, I just go to the pharmacy they, they check my ID, they fill it, I pay, that's it. But it's like, they're treating this like it's like nuclear nuclear waste. It's just, it's no, like, they're treating it worse. I've I've gotten Oxycontin out of the pharmacy with just giving them my grandfather's birthday. Wow. Like they, yeah, like that's how lenient they are with pills, which is absolutely absurd. I can, I can go to the pharmacy right now and pick up my father's prescription if I want, if, as long as I have his birth date. You know, like a lot of times they don't even check ID. Yeah. And, and like you can, and you can most certainly go pick up um, somebody else's medication. You know, like, like, exactly. You know, why can't, why can't that be the case with this? Like, why is this being treated different than any other medication? Which I don't understand why it is being treated different than any other medication. I don't understand how it's still a schedule one when, it's obvious that there's medical benefits because there's medical programs for it. So how, uh, like, that's what I don't get is how can the government still 
say that there's no medical benefit when this, when they are, but they're not. Like I don't I don't understand. Like you're saying, you're acknowledging that there is, but on paper you're saying that there isn't. So what is it? I don't like, know. Is there medical benefit or is there not? Because if there is, then I'm sorry, but it can't be a Schedule One. been a medical marijuana patient for the past two legal ravages and um two years ago massachusetts only had about a dozen um medical cannabis dispensers and during that time two years ago when i first became a patient i had been working i had been working a nine to five job um a typical nine to five job and you know i didn't really have work from home privileges so in that time when there were only a dozen dispensaries many of these dispensaries would close at, at five five thirty six six thirty so i would get home from work have to fight rush hour traffic and then try to re-up on my medicine you know in in the 20 minutes they they had before they were closing like i was in this scenario a lot of the time and it would put me it put me in really tough spot during that short period of time um i had to either take a work from home day or i had to sort of do without my medicine and and have my my uh my ailments or have the very thing i got the card from for flare up in that period of time and that would be unacceptable for any other medical condition could you imagine you know um if you had diabetes and you know cvs was only open from typical business hours of nine to five and your your boss won't let you you know leave early unless you take a, a paid time off or or whatever or lose paid time off hours to pick up that prescription you imagine how much of an outrage that would be imagine how much hell people there were regulations like that and you know you couldn't pick up your insulin as you know people would get hurt and die if that were to happen and people would raise a stink out of it and rightfully so and that was the position I was in as a medical patient in 2000 and and D, and what Dina did you know and having in in and running Northern Herb and running this delivery cannabis service. I wasn't just getting cannabis to party and enjoy myself and go to concerts. I was using it. I was buying it. I was using Northern Herb because the the 12 dispensaries at that time weren't me needs. They weren't getting me the dose of edibles I needed. You know, a, a, you know, my typical dose is about 20, 30 milligrams. To get like a 60 milligram edible some dispensaries, that's $30. I can't afford that. That isn't sustainable. That that if I were to buy the 60 milligram edible, that'd be enough for me for two days. So you expect me to spend $15 a day times 30 days or 31 days in a month? That's that's very expensive. That's untenable. I can't. You know that's how bad that's how bad medical market and still is to a certain extent. And and these 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 underground these quote unquote black market um, dealers were meeting a, a unfulfilled need. They weren't the dispensaries at that time. Didn't they weren't opening. Um, the their their edible pricing left a lot to be desired, and and it just wasn't convenient for a working man like myself. And I used Northern Herb to 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 get my medicine when I couldn't I couldn't hit up it or I had work too busy because the dispensaries were open at that time in normal hours. Two years later, now that we have fifty, you know they're 
the hours have gone a lot better with Spencer. I'm not, I wouldn't be in that same situation. But if, if we were still in that situation where we only had a dozen and not all the counties they'd had them, then I mean, I would, I would still be using Northern Herb to this day if that were, if I was a patient I was with, with AXA, you know, the dispensaries not being open at the hours I need them just, or, or the edibles too expensive for me to be practical. Northern Herb, I would get a, I would get, I would spend maybe $30 in edibles. Justin? It is me again. How goes it? <laughs> Good. I finally rolled up. Awesome. Glad to hear that you're safe. <laughs> Now that I'm uh, parked, I can recreationally smoke. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Yeah. clears throat> How's things down in your neck of the world? Uh, pretty good. Um, it's getting sort of warm out, which is nice, and um, less rain, which is also good. Yep, us too. Gotta love that eastern seaboard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, um... How so? Could you sort of like explain to the audience um, what what your story was? Um, what what got you and and um, your partner into the artisan sort of business? So actually, uh, first and foremost, uh, Bradley is my business partner, Bradley Gallant, and he is the artist. Uh, I have tried my hand many times at making. Uh, memorial jewelry and I don't have the hand for it so we found that our traits complement each other because he's a fantastic artist and I'm very good at running business so we work together in that sense. Awesome so um, were there like were there things that sort of drew you to, to the sort of business or like what, what, what sort of motivated you? So kind of uh, in a nutshell uh, Bradley had created a ring and posted it on social media. Uh, Bradley and I have been friends for as long as I can remember. And I said, that's beautiful. I think you're on to something. And then he did another one for a co-worker uh, using her son's cremated remains in it. And then I said, we're really on to something here. Let's make a business out of this. And he said no about a million times, and I had to sit him down and explain exactly why it is viable business. And eventually he said, okay, Justin, let's give it a shot. So uh, that's kind of how I got involved. It was just pretty much the beautiful work that he does. Uh, Brad got involved just out of the passion of creating items that people care for. So um, together, we kind of melded together and became a memorial company off those traits alone. Wow, um, you're such a great friend for um, encouraging your friend to, that his ideas ideas are, are very good and could be um, could could mean a lot to a lot of people. And we're, we're seeing sort of the end result of that. Yes, exactly. So, um, in, in terms of like like the customers you have, I'm, I'm sure you have like a sort of like a wide ranging like group of customers. Whether it's you know younger people like us um, trying to get rings to remember relatives, whether it's um, you know um, people trying to people trying to commemorate a special event or. You know, um, but w one thing that I was sort of curious about is, um, do you have any, like, do you ha remember any stories of, of you having to, like, um, of you create crafting a ring for, like, maybe, like, a departed military vet or, like, someone's World War II or, or, like, relative or something like that? 
Yeah. So currently, uh, we haven't we haven't released a design in that fashion yet, uh, but we're totally honored and super excited to be working on a design of that nature. Uh, we have a customer who uh, is a retired military vet themselves uh, and come from a long generation of military vets. Uh, so now uh, the client is sending us uh, clippings of the medals that were awarded to each of them. And we're combining them into a Damascus-style uh, band, and we're going to be making a World War II memorabilia uh, memory ring. So that's pretty cool, and we're like super, super honored to work on that project. Wow, that's 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 very exciting. Like the yeah, so it's going to be like a multi-generational thing. So uh, you know, the clients, the client's father, and his father before him. Uh, will all be put into one specific military design, which is uh, which is really cool in our eyes. Wow! Yeah, um, just it's it's really like heart heartwarming when you you see um you, you see stories like that, you know, of of, pe- of of people with just long and story histories, and you know, younger younger generations and older generations alike, sort of, you know, trying to preserve that history when it was very when it's very good, it's very noble history. Yeah, like even uh, even today, uh, we just finished another design for a client and. Uh, uh, same thing. We're kind of going with a general, like a like a multi generation uh, aspect to the design. So the customer provided a pocket watch that was his grandfather's. Uh, we opened the pocket watch up and removed some of the gears and sprockets, and we're able to put that into a new ring using the, the little tiny gears and a little tiny sprocket. Put that into a design with his grant with his father's wedding ring and his agricultural graduation room so like now same thing there's three generations coming into one design so we get we get to hear lots of awesome history and lots of awesome uh, stories uh, some of them are not so nice some of them are beautiful some of them will move you to tears like it's uh we get to see a lot of different walks of life in our business wow so there's, it's really ingrained in our in our culture here. It's something that is really hard to explain to people who have never been to the Emerald Triangle. But in the Emerald Triangle, it's Humboldt, Mendocino County, and Trinity Counties. And I live in Mendocino County, of course, hence the name Mendocino Generations. And the name really um, plays homage to um, the cultivators, craft cultivators that have been here for generations and also the multiple generations of the, the cultivars and the plants that have been grown here and have been passed around, you know, seeds, you know, like a lot of the farmers just share seeds after the season's over and plants when the spring is, you know, popping off and they have too many and they give them to their friends or whatever. Mm. Brought in you know, unique lineages. And so we have something really special here that doesn't really exist anywhere else. Wow, yeah, definitely. Like, um... Just, just from afar, over in like the East Coast, I just like, I, I've, I've, I've watched like a, mul- a multitude of sort of documentaries on like the Emerald Triangle, and it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's something that's just really. Hopefully hurting. not Murder Mountain. Don't let Murder Mountain skew uh, your view. <laughs> kind of a crazy, crazy documentary. <laughs> um, I mean, I only watched like I want to say the first, or like, like I want to say the first two episodes of it. And like I've mm-hmm. I, I've heard that it was like I heard it was very sensationalized, and I felt that they were going yeah, for exactly. an angle, you know, for a very specific angle that oh, it's you know, it's like the wild wild west, 
and it's just like right. but um but from other documentaries that were much more objective that i watched it's just more of a it's more of like a sort of it's more it's more of like a self like like every, like there's a lot, there are people that get into this that want to farm off the land and farm cannabis but people take care of each other and it's not as it's not as crazy as, as everyone is saying every people do their right, thing right there's definitely pockets of some shady things going on there's definitely pockets of violent you know activities criminal stuff going on there's definitely a lot of people hiding out in the woods that still won't come forward and don't want to and probably shouldn't come forward in the legal market they're they're just not in that frame of mind you know um and so, you know, there's still a lot of that going on, of course. You're never going to stop the black market. It's always going to be there in every industry, really. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of, those, those people, you know, a lot of those people are, are part of the community, too, and do come out to events and show their face here and there. But for the most part, that kind of activity is really hidden, and you don't really see it a lot, but you do hear stories and horror stories about you know, all kinds of things, kidnapping to, you know, death to death and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's still a reality here. Definitely. There's currently, as we speak, there's a cannabis hostage situation going on in Trinity County that was in the news yesterday. So, you know, these kind of things do pop up and and um, still make, I think, some of the lawmakers question why they wanted to move forward with cannabis legalization. They're, you know, they want to eradicate that kind of uh, behavior, but... You know, in, in some ways, I think that the broken regulation that's happening here in California, specifically in, in the, you know, some of the counties in the Emerald Triangle and, you know, Northern California, where this has been going on so long, it's like the, the state has tried to create a system after, the, you know, putting the cart before the horse or whatever. It's like that was already here and they tried to put some regulation around something that was, you know, pretty much working pretty well for a lot of farmers you know not the sales side but the cultivation side and making it really challenging for us and in ways that really push people back to the black market and to continue that behavior because ultimately the white market isn't working well enough to survive right so people are going to fall back on what they know and what was working and what they need to do to sell their cannabis and so that that strategy of trying to wipe out the black market didn't work and it's not going to so you know we have to still live with that reality that there's like this you know both sides of the coin going on constantly and a lot of farmers like me and my group of farmers who wanted to move forward with legalization um you know not with lack of severe um problems you know there's been so many different things going on a lot of people drop into the wayside and deciding that legalization isn't for them and that maybe cultivation isn't for them at all and have backed out and, and stopped moving forward with their permitting process and their, their licensing process at the state level. And, you know, that's really sad. A lot of farmers have been here forever having to deal with these changes. And, you know, that when you see documentaries and, and, you know, things going on, we go, you know, it's for sure. But at the same time, there is that going on. It just, I don't like that to be the image of what people think you know, our area is like. It's not like you drive up any road in Mendocino County and feel like you're going to threaten with guns or something. It's just, you know, it, it's a culture here and, and you know where not to go and who not to associate with and vice versa. So, um, you know, it's just something that we've, we've come to grapple with, you know, over the years and, and it's still a part of the industry. 
And, you know, we're trying to bring a lot of these farmers out into the light and help them be recognized and honored and, you know, be a legitimate part of the solution and standing up for the rights and going to talk to the supervisors and, you know, all these things that it takes to create the system the way that we want it. And you have to voice, but it's been scary if you're living in the shadows for so long to suddenly feel comfortable you know, putting your face on camera and talking about what you've been doing forever, right? That's a scary place to be. So it has taken a lot of effort, a lot of um, time for people to feel comfortable. And I think even still, people will not get up to the microphone and speak out for what they believe in and what they're trying to do, even though it's on the legal side of things, because there is fear of being, you know, being... shut down or you know you don't want to admit that you've been selling in the black market for three years or whatever it's you know it's a scary place to to be but i think ultimately we have to stand up and we have to put our faces out there we have to say the reality of what's happening otherwise you know people are just making the rules on our on our behalf without our voice definitely yeah like it's 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 just sort of like california is coming from like a unique place because like Um, So looking into that and seeing what beneficial insects maybe might eat some of the different mites that beneficial predatory mites that might eat a variety of the pest mites would be good to, you know, get a limited amount of those just in the variety to help keep the, uh, sorry, in the environment to help keep the, the pest populations down. Um, one of the things that I see people doing um, most often, I think, when they're first growing out is really overwatering. And overwatering can lead to so many problems. And so learning to not overwater your plants because then different like nutrient issues are going to show up and you're going to be trying to diagnose your plant and thinking maybe it's dying and needs more water and you're going to keep doing it and you're going to compound the problem. The plants really want to be watered and then they want to get the soil needs to become you know fairly dry you know not bone dry it needs to be some some moisture in there for sure but letting if you're going in pots letting the pots you know get fairly light you don't want to see your leaves really drooping if you start seeing your leaves like start to droop a little bit then you know maybe next time you need to water them a little bit sooner than that but don't keep your pot saturated because that's going to really um, cause you more problems in the long run um, and don't overfeed your plants a lot of the nutrients that are available out there if you're going with some of the different liquids that you can buy, like most of those things, I, I think that the, the instructions, um, you can really cut down at least in half and just feed them about half of what it's asking for to be safe. Um, I've heard a lot of studies saying that you can you know, cut them down by at least two thirds and that's probably more like what the cannabis plant really wants. Um, but, but just be careful about overwatering and over fertilizing. And then as, you know, your plants progress, you need to, need to really, um, if you're growing outdoors and you're getting kind of close to harvest, um, start really paying attention to the weather because if you have some really big um, dense flowers out there and then you've got some rain coming in, you're getting kind of close to harvest and you don't have a way to cover those plants up um, where you're getting a lot of really dewy nights and you're noticing in the morning the flowers are really wet. Um, that's a that's a um, it's a good chance that you're going to start seeing some botrytis, and so you can 
spent all this time loving up your plants and taking really good care of them. They're beautiful. And then all of a sudden at the very end, you can lose a lot of that. So paying attention to things like that is important. And then also in the drying and curing process, I think people should do some reading up on that. Make sure to, when you're drying, not to take things off too wet and put them away, seal them up in any way. Um, because if they're not really dry enough to put away, then all of a sudden, like you seal them up and you come back a week or so later and look in the bag and or whatever you chose to seal them up in a jar, whatever you're doing, and you're going to find mold developing in there. And so um, you, can, you can go through all this stuff and then really um, lose it all in the last you know, couple of few weeks. Yeah, definitely. So, it, it, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so like attention to detail, like as as in like most yeah, really. life is key. Yeah, yeah, and definitely continue to scout your plants throughout the season, you know, and make sure that you're not getting any infestations of any type of pests because like it's easier to treat them once you first spot them versus when like it's obvious and it's causing a lot of damage on the plants. Then it becomes really hard to treat. So, like, um, so going on to that sort of, like, that same sort of train of thought, um, so, like, when you, so when you first started, were there any, like, mistakes that you made early on that, that you, you feel that you learned from that, that other people might, that other people that are new to this might make? Uh, yeah, yes, of course, man, I made all the mistakes, I think, um, you know, like, with sprays, I've sprayed, uh, like oils when it got too hot that day before the plants were dry and fried a whole bunch of my plants. Um, I put on some top dressing, um, fairly nutrient-rich top dressing, and then um, compost teed right after that and burned my plants. And some of that is some of that top dressing. They're all organic-based, but they're were kind of time-release. So things like that you have to be really careful of because if all of a sudden you put on a bunch of top dressing and then you um, pour on a bunch of compost tea and make it all um, available to plant right away you can get really bad um, burning that's that's hard to come back from um, God, what else have I done you know not scouting my plants and as well as I should have and then having infestations that were you know really cut into the the harvest um, I what else let's see um, yeah I think I went through um, went through learning learning over watering the hard way and of course you got to pay attention to the weather and like if you're trying to be on or the you know the climate in your room or outside you know if it's going to be cold and cloudy and you're trying to just be on schedule or you have timers going off the plant's not necessarily have going to gone through that much water, right? So then all of a sudden you're adding a bunch more, which can lead to root rot and other um, uptake issues and throw off the pH of your soil. Um, that you know, there's a lot to pay attention to. But I think some of some of those ones are are probably some of the the most important things that are people people are likely to make mistakes on in the beginning. Definitely. So, um, in terms of like like the sort of like the soil and like the fertilizer and maybe like equipment like water pumps like what 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 sort of brands do you tend to use and do you tend to recommend that others do 
So for me, you know, like I, I, I kind of recommend we're we're sort of more on the regenerative tip, and we're trying to really just feed the soil and keep the biology way up. And so we tend to use a bunch of compost. We make our own compost. We also outsource um, some compost from some local um, companies. And uh, we do amend, but we also cover crop. You can get uh, soil tests done. In you know most areas, are going to have some lab. You can take a soil sample and send it in. They can kind of tell you what your soil needs, has too little or too much of, um, and tell you what to do about that. And so feeding the soil, like ideally, like it's all in the soil. Like you don't really have to add any nutrients. You don't have to fertilize that much. If you've got, if you're starting out with a, a really alive soil that does have a good amount of organic matter and minerals in it, um, you are really just going to need water. But, you know, I think a lot of people tend towards um, just seeing there's all these different nutrient companies out there that are claiming their stuff is going to you know, make your yields X amount better and and it's kind of easy to buy into that um, and in some ways you know I think folks think that it takes less work but it actually I think in the long run takes more work than just developing your soil and actually costs you a lot more money like if you can start out with a really good organic soil that's well balanced and it's not too hot and it's already gone through its composting process and and it's kind of cooked down and, and ready for planting. You, if you have the volume of soil that you need, and you can just kind of supplement with some compost tea and keep the biology going in there, um, that's going to get you through and be the easiest thing for you to deal with in the long run and be the healthiest for the plant. And also. On March 2014, the Council of the District of Columbia decriminalized possession of cannabis. The new law went into effect in July following the 30-day congressional review period. Congress sought to block D.C.'s decriminalization through another rider. On June 25, 2014, House Republicans, led by Maryland Representative Andy Harris, blocked funding for D.C.'s law. The Harris Amendment bans D.C. government from spending any funds on efforts to lessen penalties for Schedule I federal drug crimes. Harris argued that D.C.'s law was bad policy, assessing a fine of $25, a fraction of the $100 fine in Maryland. Well, guess what? D.C. DC is its own area. They can do what they want to do. They don't have to... This, this Maryland official ramming down Maryland's laws. Again, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia are very close to each other. But, um, but this Maryland congressperson ramming down his own laws um, to D.C., even though the people of D.C. knew what they were voting for and they were grown adults that willingly voted through direct democracy and what they wanted, this Harris guy would be like, nope, canceled. But again, you, you have to expect these shenanigans from your officials in 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 um in, in the federal in the federal government and, and in the courts. You gotta you gotta expect these shenanigans and you gotta continue fighting. In response, activists launched the boycott Maryland's first district Harris consi- constituency. Legalization. Initiative 71 was a Washington, D.C. voter-approved ballot initiative that legalized recreational use of cannabis. 
The short title of the initiative was Legalization of Possession of Minimum Amounts of Marijuana for Personal Use Act of 2014. The measure was approved by by 64.87% of the voters on November 4th, 2014 and went into effect February 26, 2015. Under legalization measure that went into effect 2015, persons over the age of 21 in D.C. may possess up to two ounces of marijuana for up to three mature and three immature marijuana plants in their homes and transfer up to one ounce of marijuana to another individual. Drug paraphernalia such as bongs were also legalized. The sale, purchase, and public consumption of marijuana remains illegal. Again, like I have talked about, public consumption is a boogeyman, alright? The thing is, in all of these legal states, you know, um, although, although more states are starting to have tasting lounges and cannabis bars and cannabis lounges, Unless you own your own property in the states, a lot in all these legal states, and if your landlord in your apartment complex has no cannabis in the lease, you don't have a place to use. I would have no problem with this if this was regulated like alcohol, and no landlord would ban your right to use cannabis. Like again, banning banning your right to put alcohol in the fridge of your rental room or apartment. That'd be that'd be that'd be financial suicide for a landlord because alcohol is so commonplace and it's so ubiquitous that they wouldn't be able to move the property if they ever pulled that. But with with, with cannabis, because of the lingering stigmas, you don't have a place to use if you're not a homeowner. Your landlord can outright say no. You know, even though you pay, even though you pay sixty percent of your income to enrich my pockets. I'd, I, I'm going to invoke tyranny and not allow you to use. And they have the right to do that, sadly. So again, this is a boogeyman. And this is a way that they can continue to bust poorer people that don't own property and whose landlords ban it. This is a way they, they can continue to get tickets. As we've gone over in, an ep- in previous episodes, in D.C., 90% of the people that um that get that still get arrested even though it's legal or still get fines for public consumption or whatever are are, are 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 black people and people of color that that ends up happening it's a no joke and they're going to use these laws to go after vulnerable groups they're going to go after indigenous people in australia they're going to go after people of color in australia they're going to go after poor people whose landlords banned them from using so you got to watch out for these things Okay, let's continue. We're almost done. Opposition in Congress. In March, December, no, in mid-December 14, Congress passed an omnibus spending bill named C. Ronibus, a portmanteau of omnibus and continuing resolution that ended the federal ban of medical marijuana, but included a legislative rider that targeted DC's Initiative 71. The rider's final language for the use of funds to enact any law, rule, regulation, or legalize or otherwise reduce penalties associated with possession, use, and distribution of any Schedule 1 substance under the Controlled Substance Act, or any tetrahydrocannabinols derived from recreational purposes. The final language notably solely used the phrase enact rather than enact or carry out. Delegate Ele- Eleanor Holmes Norton said that 
she was told by the Democratic budget negotiators that the omission was made on purpose to give city leaders a chance to argue that in moving forward, the district is only carrying out and not enacting the measure. Norton reiterated this point in an Initiative 71 questions and answers section on her House website. Both D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and the Council District at Columbia took the position that the voter-approved initiative became self-enacting. On January 13, 2015, D.C. Council Chairman Phil Mendelson sent the measure to Congress for a mandatory 30-day review period in accordance to the D.C. at Columbia's Home Rule Act. On February 24, 2015, Representatives Jason Chaffis, Mark Meadows sent a letter to Bowser urging her to not move forward with Initiative 71 again. These 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 um, lawmakers are going to use reefer madness and they're going to culture or posture to to be like oh we we have to ban cannabis because you know it's still illegal and we don't like it and Nancy Reagan told us to just say no so these conservative lawmakers as I just read um, had it through 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 some shade at the initiative Congress, congressional. Republicans, including the omnibus writer author Ed Andy Harris, excuse me, threatened prison time for DC mayor and others involved. Jeez. So again, they're going to they're going to be very hand ham-fisted and they're going to do everything they can to stop this. So again, you have to really keep this stuff in mind here. That this is not going to be an easy fight. You have to be in this fight to win this fight. Because they're going to continue. They're going to continue throwing obstacles. So again, the work ain't over just because it's legal now. Congressional Republicans, including the omnibus writer, authors, Andy Harris, threatened prison time for D.C. mayor and others involved, suggesting that they could be prosecuted by the Justice Department under the anti Deficiency Act, which imposes criminal penalties on government employees who knowingly spend public funds in excess of their appropriated budgets. Marijuana arrest patterns. Between 2010 and 2015, the total number of marijuana distribution arrests made by police agencies in D.C., Metropolitan Police Department, Metro Transit Police Department, and federal agencies such as the U.S. Park Police and U.S. Capitol Police declined by 80%. The number of arrests for marijuana distribution and marijuana possession with intent to distribute is 13,378 in 2010 and 234 in 2015. However, in 2016, more than 400 people were arrested in D.C. Like I just told you, 400 people in D.C., despite it being legal, were arrested in D.C. for public consumption of marijuana. And I would bet you money that it was people of color that had to suffer from that. And they're going to try these things with indigenous people in Australia. You know, they're going to continue this racist war on drugs. And because because cannabis is still you can only really legally possess and home grow if you own property, I'm, I'm guessing in Australia, there's not going to be any places for you to use within the capital territory.
And if, if it's forbidden in your lease, guess what the cops in Australia are going to do? They're going to, they're going to continue to pad their numbers and they're going to continue to give, to, to give people tickets for public consumption. Because again, you don't have lounges in DC. You don't have plate, you don't have like bars where you can smoke the cannabis. If your landlord prohibits it, you, you, you can't use it in your place of residence. And you cannot use it in your car because you can be charged with an OUI. So again, this is just a way to bust people, particularly people of, of, of color and, and, and poorer people that don't own property. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's a tax on those people. It's a, it's a technicality that they can exercise to continue busting people. And the numbers remain high in 2017. Arrests for marijuana distribution also sharply increased from 80 in 2015 to 220 in 2016. Fake legalization, man. Protests and events. On April 20th, 2017, local act activist Adam Inninger and six other activists were arrested by U.S. Capitol Police during a public event where they handed out free cannabis cigarettes to anyone with a congressional ID badge. <laughs> Economy. Though D.C. law prohibits the selling of cannabis, a number of entrepreneurs sought to exploit the legal gray area around the drug. Kushgods is a local government that accepts donations and distributes cannabis with a fleet of cars decorated with vinyl wraps of cannabis leaves while stating they're not selling cannabis. The owner of Kushgods pled guilty in 2016 to two counts of distributing cannabis. A number of cannabis pop-ups have appeared in D.C. hosting events which donations are are accepted again like i just said like that's 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 the loophole they're getting around because they can't really have sales in dc so they're, they're so they're effectively selling like t-shirts for a hundred bucks and then giving you an uh, a quarter of, of cannabis with that and saying oh you didn't you didn't buy cannabis you you just bought a shirt and then you happen to get a quarter of cannabis as a gift. That's 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 the grift that's having to be run because of the federal government blocking um, adult use dispensaries. and want to support our humble little project, there are a few ways that you can do so. Supporting us helps us keep the lights on, pay rent, pay for hosting and equipment, and travel. And you can do this by going to https colon slash slash anchor dot fm slash I am Cannabis Sativa podcast slash support. You can also support me on Patreon at www dot patreon dot com slash ic sativa podcast you can support the podcast for as little as one dollar a month we also have a five dollar tier if you're feeling extra generous additionally if you wish to get in contact with us you can leave a voice message on anchor you can do this by going to www.anchor.fm slash i am cannabis sativa podcast and click the send voice message button and i may just play it on a future episode you can also call and leave a voicemail at 617-466-9389 that is 617-466-9389 and i may just play it on a future episode feel free to try sequoia organics for a great source of cbd and hemp based products you can check them out by hitting the link https colon slash slash bit 
bit.ly slash 334krv9. And you can enter the following codes. Dogtree20, Tincture20, 40% off ISO, 15% off CBD entire store. And you can also get inexpensive CBD flour directly to your door quickly and cheaply in New England and the rest of the United States by going to HTTPS colon slash slash shop dot Boston Empire dot com slash question mark REF equals D Scotland. And my email to contact me is I am cannabis sativa at gmail dot com. And as always, stay medicated, my friends.